We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. And, man, we're going to try to have some today because it's uh, kind of one of those days. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. All right. Um, yeah, just uh, uh, another uh, sad day in the country. Uh, right now, uh, as we speak, Edmonton uh, paying tribute to two slain police officers officers out there my goodness it's like uh six seven in the last uh less than a year uh funerals for the two officers going on right now and um you know there you go what more do you need to say about that and and a bizarre scenario happening out happening out of nashville uh and, and you know is anybody surprised seven dead in a nashville school shooting that includes the shooter but sadly enough two adults two ki- uh, sorry three adults three kids are dead uh as well as the female shooter the female shooter uh having uh, reportedly two handguns and a assault rifle so uh we'll follow that story but uh, there you go another situation like that uh in the united states of uh, of america all right what else we got uh the big news uh i guess is the budget comes out tomorrow and there has been some chatter about a uh, grocery rebate we'll talk about that in just a second Hand Don, the MP from Don Valley North, uh, is, uh, of course, uh, we're hearing now going to sue Global News for uh, the allegations against him that he was one of the 11 uh, candidates that got support in some form from the Chinese Communist Party and also allegations that he wanted uh, the two Michaels uh, release delayed in order to best cert, uh, suit election purposes. So we'll see what comes out with that as uh, as time progresses. Uh, also, the uh, uh, Auditor General report is now out and said watch those renovations uh, that are happening in Ottawa in the House of Commons and such because they can get out of hand as re- you know renovations I guess do all right so um, we're watching uh, Christia Freeland uh, finance minister uh, she uh, or sorry deputy prime minister uh, putting her new shoes on because of course that is uh, the, the tradition with uh, a new budget is that uh, uh, the politician gets new shoes uh, and apparently they're on sale, which is great. So uh, that's coming out tomorrow. S- things are starting to leak out a little bit about it. Um, apparently there is relief on the way from uh, those or for those that are really suffering. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois uh, from Dalhousie University, who we've had on the show numerous times, said that, um, you know, uh, we have to be careful with this because the more money you put into people's hands, that shoots inflation back up so that has to be uh targeted we'll see what that looks like uh come tomorrow here's what global news's tina trajani had to say about what we can possibly expect 
The relief that would be offered by the federal government would come in the form of a GST rebate, a one-time payment for lower-income Canadians. As senior government sources told the CBC, the breakdown would look something like this. A couple with two kids would receive roughly $470, a single person with no kids, about $230, and roughly the same for a senior. The rebate would not be based on what a person spends on groceries per month, and there's nothing the government will require to ensure that the money paid out was actually spent on food. About 11 million households across the country will benefit from this measure, which will cost the government over $2 billion. The cost of food has shot up almost 10% from February of last year, and experts have said it could take a while for prices to come down. Just this morning, we've learned the cost of lettuce is expected to rise even higher thanks to unfavorable weather conditions in California. Tina Trajani, Global News. All right, so there's uh, a little sneak peek of uh, of what we may uh, hear. We do understand there is some uh, some sort of relief in the form of uh, for grocery prices, but again, um, it appears we're just handing out money and handing out money and handing out money. And again, if needed, that's 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 what uh, you know it serves a purpose. However, not really being aware of where it's going or or what people are using for, um, you know, we just can't keep doing this. We need. We need good paying jobs. We need people to be able to sustain life here. We need to be, I mean, it's like the old, uh, the old example, you know, don't give people fish, give them the means to fish themselves. And, um, you know, I'm not sure how much more, uh, relief we're going to hear, uh, coming up in the budget, certainly for middle class, uh, Canadians, uh, and, and all of this, uh, coming up just ahead of April 1st, where, uh, the federal government series of taxes go into effect as well, uh, especially the uh, accelerator tax on alcohol, which goes up the price of inflation. This was put in a couple of years ago, and nobody really cared because inflation was sitting around 1%, uh, if that. So uh, when your alcohol prices went up a cent, or sorry, a percent, nobody cared. However, now it's like 6.2% that all of this stuff is uh, is going to go up. How does that not only affect you, but also the hospitality industry that has been getting hit with all of this? We're going to talk to uh, Honor Sebastava, president of Unique Restaurant Group, local uh, uh, local restaurant group that is, is trying to get by and where they are. Interesting article in the Hamilton Spectator last week interviewing a couple of, um, of, uh, of, of brewers, local brewers, uh, craft brewers, said, oh, it's not going to bother us. It's not going to affect us. It's not going to mean I don't know. I don't know how any taxes can go up 6% and it's not felt down the chain. Uh, but certainly we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, Hamilton City Council mulling an idea to address homelessness. We'll talk about that and talk about your planets being correctly aligned. Five of them will be tonight. Will be will we be able to see it? We'll find out. We've certainly talked a lot about the uh, taxes that are coming up April 1st, uh, federal government uh, taxes, uh, specifically the accelerator tax on alcohol. Uh, we remember when this used to be an issue come election time. The sin taxes, they're going to raise the sin taxes. Everyone would scream, and it would actually be uh, an election issue. It would be on the campaign trail uh, that people would fight this out and so on. And now uh, the uh, we have the, the government that's in power uh, passed this a couple of years ago, a few years ago, when inflation was sitting around 1%, that every single year these taxes would just go up by the rate of inflation. And, I, I, you know, I'm not sure how this costs the government in any way. They don't produce the alcohol, and they certainly, you know, uh, make a lot of money from the taxes and such. So this is just a cash grab every year, and we don't get to vote on it. We don't. There's no debate about it, and, and most of the time it doesn't even make the 
news. So this year, obviously, it's standing out because it's up over 6%. And wherever that's applied or what have you, you know, eventually... It's coming to you. So to talk more about all of this and where we are and how it affects the hospitality industry, Anish Sarvastava is with us, president of the Unique Restaurant Group. Includes South Coat 53, B-Side Social, Powerhouse, District uh, Hotel, or Kitchen and Bar, sorry, King George and Dickens, and Anish is with us now. Anish, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing good, Scott. How are you? So before I'm good, thanks, Anish. So before we even get to this tax, how's business now? Uh, obviously, we've chatted as you as you and, and, and the company went through this uh, this restaurant or sorry, this uh, hospitality um, uh, sort of. I, I mean, man, it was a train wreck for for anybody in the hospitality industry through the pandemic. Now you've come out of it. How are things now? How do you compare it? Um, you know what? They're, they're doing pretty well. Uh, of course, Jan said, um, any year is a slow time of year with, you know, the winter and weather and the post Christmas blues and things like that. But, you know, uh, St. Patrick's Day, which is usually kind of the turning point, was very strong this year. A lot of people out. Um, you know, uh, but we, so now we got different pressures. I think that the one good thing is we're still seeing people coming out to, uh, restaurants and bars and there's still that, that, that the demand is still there, but now it's all the price pressures that are coming from, from inflation. Um, you know, uh, you, you mentioned it, but food inflation obviously has been running much higher than overall inflation. And, um, there doesn't seem to be any end in sight to that. And that's really starting to impact, uh, pricing, which ultimately will impact, um, the ability for people to continue coming out and enjoying these establishments. And we've talked about that before. You know, everybody couldn't wait to get out and support local and, and get into the hospitality industry again and, and help them out. And then, like you said, just like every family, you guys are nailed with this inflation on food and such as 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 everyone is and inevitably have to pass it on to the consumer. What are your thoughts and how is it going to affect you with this new tax increase coming April 1st? Is it where you see a dent in this? Will you see a a change in menu as a result, the prices? Yeah, I think you will. Uh, some of it we've already seen because this has already been built in. Uh, yeah. As you mentioned, it's in the legislation. Um, we've already seen significant price increases um, from our suppliers back in Jan and Feb. Um, you know, uh, and, and the, it's a double whammy because they're also facing, you know, whether it's fuel costs or, you know, if you think about kegs, the cost of uh um, you know, materials and, and whatever it might be. Then on top of that, add these excise tax hikes. And we're, you know, it's, it's a significant, you know, I, I won't get into specific numbers, but there are some kegs of, of big brands that you would know that yeah. are going up $20, $30 per keg. Hmm. So it's, it's not a, it's not one of those, um, uh, you know, the, 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 we always joke about every, every supplier takes a 2% price increase every year and you just kind of, mostly absorb those things or you take your price up 2% and life goes on. But now when you start talking big numbers, um, it uh, matters. It impacts us and it impacts the consumer. Considering what the hospitality industry has been going through, and I guess, you know, as soon as you do for one, everybody will want it. But considering what the hospitality industry has been through, are you surprised they didn't relax this this year? Or even because, again, this isn't their cost. This is just pure profit for, for governments. Yeah, I think the challenge for with so uh, whether you look at um, this annual excise tax hike, but also the um, you know minimum wage is the same thing now. It's all indexed right. to inflation. Um, the the problem with it is it, it 
the, the premise of let's index things to the cost of inflation or cost of goods makes sense. But then you've got to take into fact that, or you've got to take into perspective the reality that everyone's going through right now. So right now, you're just inflaming or fueling further inflation by continuing to pass this through when you don't necessarily need the revenue, right? I mean, the government can always argue they can use the revenue. But the point is when you've got products that are up 6 10%, depending on the category, um, this kind of automatic increase in taxation, which will hurt businesses, will hurt consumers, doesn't really make any sense to me. And the other thing, too, Anish, is like, you know, like you said, in the last, well, we've had traditionally low rates for God knows how long now, 20 years, it seems. Everybody was wondering when this was going to be over, and clearly it is. But when you base something on inflation during those times as compared to where we are now, I mean, this could go up every single year. I mean, maybe not this much, but certainly a substantial amount. Yeah, and I and I think that's the I think that's the government's plan or the idea, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, in, in, we've already got the highest tax rates on alcohol beverage products, I believe, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't I don't think people um, realize that how much of that dollar they spend, uh, whether it's at the LCBO or at a restaurant or at the beer store, um, uh, how much of that actually goes back to the government. It's it's significant. You'd be you'd be shocked. And um, to continue adding to it in, in this day and age really doesn't make any any sense. It's it's become, I think, overly it's become a, a, a political convenient, politically convenient thing to do. Um, and unfortunately, what these guys should be doing is thinking about the impacts of their actions, and not just doing things automatically because, you know, they can. Honor Sarvastava with us, president of Unique Restaurant Group, Southcote 53, Beside Social Powerhouse, District Kitchen and Bar, as well as the King George and Dickens. April 1st, and it ain't no joke, it's going up. Honor, as always, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, Council mulls a multi-million dollar plan to end chronic homelessness in Hamilton, says the headline in the spec. It sounds simple, but is it? Let's bring in Brother Richard McPhee, Executive Director, Good Shepherd, and with us now. Brother Richard, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm well, Scott. Thanks for inviting me today. We certainly know the great work that you and your team does in the city and have done for decades and such. How has it been post-COVID-19? What are you noticing now that perhaps you didn't notice before? Well, for sure, for an agency like Good Shepherd, the numbers that we are seeing is are really gone through the roof, whether it's in our shelter programs or whether it's in our food distribution programs or even our counseling programs where people have come to us uh, for the first time in their lives, but also stay with us longer because of the lack of affordable housing and the lack of resources to be able to purchase that housing. So uh, interesting headline today, and it, it sounds like this is a simple problem, but I know it's something that you've been working at for decades. What can we do now? Is there something you can see that perhaps we're not doing a different way to address this? Well, I think, First of all, the the solution to homelessness is housing. And the reality of the situation, as many of us know, is that the housing market in Hamilton has become tighter and tighter, particularly for a renter. And when someone is on a a very modest income, such as Ontario Works or ODSP, their choices are become much more limited than they've been in the past. And what we're seeing because of COVID 
and because of some of the the challenges that that brought to our society is that more and more people have ended up on the streets and are coming to organizations like the Good Shepherd or perhaps not and, and showing up in encampments, which has been a challenge for this community and, and many communities across our country. We struggle with the, the issue of encampments, but also the issue of of occupancy rates within the shelter where most of the shelters are running above 100% occupancy on any given night. Not to even um, look at the problems of homelessness, but also compounding that is the whole issue of uh, the uh, opioid epidemic and on top of that, um, the lack of affordable, decent housing for people to be able to find. It certainly sounds at, 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 at the center of this, it's a housing issue, which, again, we know is something that's go, that goes across the country and certainly for everyone. Is the answer here, Richard, just to build more of this type of housing? Is, 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 it something we can, is it something we can fix or is it something we just have to maintain or we just can only maintain? Well, first of all, we don't have enough housing stock. I think we need to turn around and build more. We've lost housing stock in the private market, and we need to figure out ways in which people can find affordable housing, either through not-for-profits or through private landlords. I think the issue has been that we've had a long, long history as a country where we have not seen housing as a right for people, and it's become a real challenge, and it's coming to bite us right now in terms of what we're seeing. The number of folks who are coming onto the streets, staying on the streets for longer periods of time is astronomical. And it's really hard. You know, you, you take in a woman who, for example, with her four children and she's left a violent situation and she comes to a shelter and she's there six or seven months because there is nothing for her. And we're saying to our government officials, both at the federal, the provincial and the municipal level, like we need help. Uh, it's been a challenge. We're coming out of COVID and we're experiencing some of the same challenges that many others are experiencing within our system, which is the issue of uh, compensation for staff, the lack of uh, people to employ that have the skills that are necessary, and particularly to deal with the challenges that we're seeing today with the increase of uh, addictions and also mental health issues uh, in our community. And I don't think you can walk anywhere in downtown Hamilton and not notice that we have more and more people on our streets and more and more people are in need of a place to go that's safe. And they've, in many cases, been abandoned by other systems within our community. Uh, certainly through the pandemic, Richard, we've seen the weak links in the chain. We've seen whether it's a healthcare system, what have you, uh, you know, this has been brought to our attention. Do you feel the same is happening here? Are we recognizing that this is a serious situation, that we need to change something? Um, I don't think as much as we should because I think the reality of the situation is many of the people that worked in shelters and have worked on the streets with people who are homeless have been first responders. They've been staff of various agencies and various uh, levels of government that have gone out to get people off of the streets to get them into shelters. And the problem with it is once, if we can get somebody into shelter, it's really hard to find them a place to live. So I think it's a, it's an important issue to remind, remind ourselves that some of the folks that really were um, at the front lines throughout uh, the pandemic, who, who worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, throughout the pandemic, because we couldn't close our doors because people had nowhere else to go um, really are heroes that really need to be celebrated and also be rewarded in terms of having the ability to uh, make a decent wage and on top of it to be able to um, 
to come to work and feel that there's some satisfaction in that they're not just feeling like they're just spitting the wheels in a in a uh, hamster cage all the time in terms of trying to find somebody an opportunity to uh, move on with their lives so that they can see hope and that we can continue to give hope to people in our community. What are your thoughts about Hamilton Council mulling over this plan? What are, what are your thoughts? Uh, first of all, I want to say it's a long overdue. I think the city has come up, the staff of the city have come up with a tremendous plan, ambitious plan, but it's going to take other levels of government to come on board. But I also know that if we don't put resources into this system, that we are, we are on a system that's on the brink of disaster and it won't be there in the future. What stands out for you? Tell us what separates this, what's different here. I think the reality of the situation is that through the pandemic, more and more people ended up coming, losing their housing for whatever reason. I think part of it was the lack of mental health supports. I think the issue of the ongoing uh, issues of mental health and the replacement of some of the challenges and anxieties people were experiencing with substance use. I think the other part of it is just we have not committed to a a comprehensive plan to find housing in our community and build housing fast enough for those that do not have the resources to purchase it, but have the the ability to rent, but not necessarily at the, the type of rents that we're seeing in Hamilton right now, which in many cases are anywhere between 1800 plus plus for a one bedroom apartment. A room right now is costing over $800. Man. Uh, what would this housing, what should this housing look like, Brother Richard? You know, we've seen, you've talked about the encampments and where people have had to set up and such. What, yeah. what, what do we need? I think that housing needs to be uh, at least a place where people can, in fact, um, begin to call a place home. And in our work, particularly in psychiatric rehabilitation, with many folks who have long-standing histories of uh, psychiatric diagnosis, we say three things. People need to be able to have a home, a job, and a friend. And what that home means, it needs to be a place that they can walk, perhaps have their own bathroom, cook for themselves, and to be able to have relationships. They need to be able to have the meaningful activity in their lives because many of the folks that we're talking about have struggled for many years in terms of their social context and their ability to uh, have relationships that are productive. And on top of that, they need to be able to have the the ongoing support of a community around them. So I think it's got to be that simple. It doesn't have to be grandiose. It needs to be uh, a decent place to call home where you or I would want to live, but necessarily doesn't have to be any type of a palace. I think it needs needs to be modest in size, but it also needs to include supports. And for many folks that we're talking about, they'll need supports 24 hours a day. But the reality will be is that those supports are cheaper than keeping people in shelters, than cheaper than keeping people in jails, and cheaper than keeping people in uh, psychiatric hospitals or general hospitals, and cheaper than turning around and having emergency response vehicles coming mm-hmm. to their situation. If we can turn around and provide the necessary supports, we've proven time and time again that that um, people can, in fact, live independently in a community with supports that will be that can be graduated depending on what the person's need. Brother Richard McVie with his executive director, Good Shepherd, Hamilton City Council, mulling over a plan and trying to get a handle on homelessness. Brother Richard, as always, thanks so much for all that you do, and best of luck moving forward. Thanks a lot, Scott. I appreciate your call. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
Five planets aligning in our sky this week. Dr. Elena Hyde is with us, Director Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and here now. Elena, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, looking at the skies with some trepidation in Toronto, uh, what exactly our weather is going to be like tonight. But you're quite right. There are some very nice things to see. So this isn't just one night. I understand this is over the week. So if the weather opens up a bit, we may not be tonight, but maybe tomorrow. How long will we get this show? Well, that was my my next recommendation, really. Um, Over the next few days, the alignment bit, but it's actually still um, sort of visible until Jupiter starts to get, uh, well, behind the sun um, right around April Fool's, actually. So um, <laughs> uh, up until April Fool's, you'll have a pre- fairly reasonable chance of catching all five of them. And to the naked eye, to the average person, what would we see? So if it's reasonably clear in your location, what you have are uh, Jupiter, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, um, and Uranus, just uh, sort of barely visible to the naked eye. And what's extra nice is it's not just a five-planet alignment, but actually we have the moon out there as well. So tonight, if it's clear wherever you are, uh, you can look for Mercury and Jupiter close to the setting sun. Uh, Never look directly at the sun, but just after the sun goes down. And then, of course, uh, higher up, you'll have Venus and Mars with the moon in between them. And this is where a little caution is uh, warranted because in order to catch the planet Uranus, you will have a little bit of trouble. It is just barely visible in the very darkest of skies to the unaided eye. So if you want to catch Uranus, you might need binoculars or some other assistance. Uh, But they're all up there and wonderfully putting on a show when we get these nice alignments, uh, people always say it looks like sort of pearls in the sky um, because you get a nice line of stars. Well, planets, I should say, a nice line of bright things in the sky, um, which you can which you can see with your with your naked eye, um, leaving out, of course, the fifth and uh, you know sort of um, dimmest, which is the planet Uranus. And how do you know? And and you know, I, you know, I've talked to uh, to both uh, you and Professor Delaney about this over the years. And I get out and I watch. And I'm sometimes I'm not sure if I'm looking at the right thing. How will we know if we're that's it? That's what we're looking at. Well, there's a great tip for planets in particular, which is when you're out looking at the sky, all the stars are are twinkling out there, but the planets are the least twinkly. And this is sound, might sound a little bit unscientific, but it's actually because the planets are physically closer to us, the light doesn't uh, twinkle as much through our atmosphere. So they are, mm. they're basically um, a less uh, twinkly, less fluctuating light source. And sometimes the brighter objects like Venus, occasionally people will think, is that an airplane? Because yeah, it looks yeah. like such a regular source. So if you're looking for uh, in the right direction, you can use tools like Stellarium or Free Stellarium um, to find out which direction to point your eyeballs in. And then after that, look for the least twinkly would be my advice. All right. And the largest is Venus, is it? Like that's the one that should stand out? Yes, that will be the brightest. 
So yeah. Venus is very bright. Like I say, that that is one that does tend to get confused for an airplane. Right. Um, it's quite quite bright at the moment. Jupiter is um, actually even a little bit brighter, uh, but um, or no, actually Venus is brighter still, but it's very very close. So Jupiter and Venus, as you might remember, had a conjunction just a little bit ago on March first within uh just within the size of the moon that's how close they were on the sky and so they're actually still not terribly far away from each other but um but jupiter is now moving very close to the sun so i'll just say that if you're out there looking and you do have binoculars just to the left of mars um there's actually m35 one of the messier objects and because we've just had the vernal equinox here in the northern hemisphere this is actually the start of what's called the Messier season. So it's a really excellent time of year to go out and look with binoculars. It's a whole uh, astronomy festive season, if you will. Great chance to look at deep sky objects with binoculars and have star parties. So it's an um, astronomy. It's an astronomy smorgasbord. It's not just five planets aligning. Everything's going on out there. Uh, Dr. It's, Elena. There's always <laughs> something to see. That's it. Dr. <laughs> Elena Hyde with us directly. Director Alan Carswell, Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Five planets align uh, between now and uh, April Fool's Day, of course, weather permitting. Elena, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Absolutely, and uh, don't forget to look up at you, folks. Oh, man, this guy was full-on Forrest Gump this weekend. He just ran and ran and ran and ran, and he's probably, I hope someone shut him off. Uh, and you can most likely uh, smell the Ben Gay or A535 uh, through your radio right now. When he's not uh, anchoring the CHML news, he's out running around. And this weekend, he put the best foot forward and did the big one, the full around the bay. Dave Woodard is with us now, Dave. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm not too bad, Scott. Thanks. How are you feeling today? Yeah, it was a it was a little uh, it was a little hard to get out of bed this morning. I'm not gonna lie. It was uh, I, I, now. Wait, was that? Let's wait. Let's clarify okay. that. Was that right. was that just was that just waking up or moving? I mean, no, no, no. It was it was moving. I think it was it was yeah. one of those things that yesterday I was sore and I was stiff, but I was okay. And then I went to bed last night, and uh, it was just it it was quite sore when I went to get up this morning. <laughs> so what did you do? Uh, here we're going backwards here, mm-hmm. but what did you do? Did you like? Did you have a hot tub? What did you do to sort of relax and unwind from all of this? I mean, do you stretch? What do you do after you've run thirty k? I sat in a car for an hour. Uh, no, it was. You know what? Because that will seize you up. Won't yeah, you? You, really, you like literally fall out of the car. Yeah, it was really bad. They, they didn't. I don't know if it was just the where the the parking was, but it was just it was a, a mess to try to get out of the the parking yeah. garage. Uh, so it did take. A while and and yeah, getting out of the car when I got home, it was it was very difficult. But it was it was one of those things that I, I just went for a little bit of a walk, uh, you know, around the um, uh, around the top area of uh, the first Ontario Center, and then you know walked out to the car and that kind of thing, and and just trying to get a little bit of that lactic acid out of your legs. And yeah. uh, I know there, there were some people within my running group that went to the gym after the run to uh, wow. 
Oh, yeah. They just, well, it's just, you know, lightly, you know, doing yeah. some leg curls. Detune. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I didn't do that. But, uh, and then after that, I went for a couple of drinks at a bar. So that helped. <laughs> boy. So what was the hardest part? We talked on Friday. Mm-hmm. You talked about the hill and the last portion of the run. It's where it's staged. How did that, how did that go for you? What was the most difficult part for you? You know, I think it was actually about the middle part for me that was the most difficult because I, I knew that I was waiting to get to that heartbreak hill. I had trained for it. I knew what was coming up. Uh, I knew what I needed to do to get up the hill. It was the the middle part in, in which you're kind of sitting there going, okay, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Uh, and, and you're not focused on the moment. So I think for right. me, that was the toughest part. But, you know, I mean, it, it, it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of people there, a lot of great signs, most of which I can't repeat on air. <laughs> uh, but it was it was it was great. There was a, a lot of people out and, and cheering us on. So was Heartbreak Hill easier than you thought it was? Um, I don't know if easier <laughs> when you're talking about Heartbreak Hill being easy. Yeah. I don't know if it's easy. Did you overthink or, it? Um, maybe ahead of time. I, I think that I overthought it. But, you know, going into it again, you know, the 26 kilometer mark, you uh, you don't really think too much about continuing to go because you've been going for 26 kilometers and your feet hurt and your legs hurt. And so going up a hill, it, it hurts anyway. So you're just kind of like, <laughs> okay, fine. It's just another part of the, the, the race. So... Uh, so would you, if you were to do this again, I, I, maybe I should ask you, are you yeah. going to do it again? Would you do it I again? I plan to. Yeah, I plan to. I mean, I, I'd like to do like a full marathon between yeah. now and next year, but uh, yeah, I plan to do it again. So what would you do differently? Anything? I don't know if I do anything necessarily specific to the race itself. Maybe in training, I do a little bit more uh, in terms of like uh, strength training in between, uh, just so that, you know, my legs are a little bit stronger, my back's a little bit better, those kinds of things. So you're not, um, you know, trying to, to, to stay strong throughout the race, you already are. But other than that, I mean, it's it's really just kind of doing it. It's all about, to me, it, it's not necessarily the, the race is something that you have to work towards. Um, you know, that's what the training is for. The training is all about that. The race mm. day is just the reward for all the training, training that you've done. And um, uh, I, I did the short one once. And what amazed me, uh, the people, the, first the starting line, yep. it's just a mass of people. Mm-hmm. And, and then those along the way, and you alluded to that. Let's talk about the fans and the people along the route. Oh, my favorite is the Grim Reaper. Sits outside of the uh, cemetery uh, and, uh, you know, has always got a bunch of signs. You know, if you're feeling tired, just come over to the right here. Uh, you know, like just giving everybody high fives. <laughs> and there's and it's it's interesting because in different parts of the race, there are, you know, like more people along uh, North Shore uh, Road. There's a lot of people in, uh, that are cheering you on. Some even have, you know, like they've got bananas out for you that you can have mm-hmm. or like gummies or anything like that. So it's really uh, great to hear from people when you're struggling, uh, you know, in parts of it. And you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And you hear these people cheering you on, sometimes even by name. So it's really kind of nice to, 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 to do that and have that part of the uh, community. 
You talked about uh, training is mm-hmm. is is the pre race stuff, the race day you enjoy. When did you realize yeah. I did it? I did it. Did you? Was it when you went through first Ontario over across that finish line? We saw the great shot of you on social media. Yeah. Is it that, or when do you finally realize, holy hell, I've done this? Actually, when I get past the Grim Reaper, because you know it's it's right at the end. You know that you've got yeah, fewer yeah. than three kilometers left to go. You know that you know you're 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 all done the most difficult part, and it's it's one of those things where you can start to enjoy it and you can start to sit there and go, okay, now now you focus and you can see first Ontario Center, you see the big white building and you're like, okay, we're in the final final bit here. So that's when I really started, you know, appreciating it and feel like I've done it. That is amazing. Congratulations you. to you, Dave. Dave Woodard, anchor with 900 CHML, not the little race. He went all the way around for the 20, uh, 129th edition of the Around the Bay Road Race and will live to do it again, he says. Congratulations, Dave. All the best. Thanks again. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, I want to clarify. We were talking to Dave Woodard, uh, who over the weekend ran the, ran the Around the Bay Road Race, but the whole thing, like the, the big one, the 30K. And then, of course, you can do the 5K. That's what I did. And I didn't run. The only running I did was probably back to the car. Uh, or maybe for a hot dog. <laughs> no. But yeah, an incredible experience. And congratulations to Dave for making it all the way around. All right. As we mentioned, uh, the federal budget is tomorrow. The uh, Tuesday it comes out. There's been some chatter uh, over the course of the weekend, the little things leaking out here and there, as often happens. Uh, we are hearing that there are some uh, or there is some relief for those uh, who specially need it in areas of groceries and so and so on. Although Sylvain Charlebois from Delhi he said, you know, you got to be pretty balanced, pretty fine line here, because if you add too much, then you're feeding inflation again. So how do you find the balance in all of this? Let's bring in Michael Veal, professor of economics, McMaster University, academic director, Statistics Canada Research Data Center. And with us now, Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks. And I hope you are, too. So far, so good, Michael. We're hearing little bits, drib, uh, dribs and drabs coming out of this, uh, specifically around groceries. Your thoughts on what you're hearing, or do we just have to wait and see? So I can remember the days when the budgets were super secret and you wouldn't get anywhere near this kind of information. And now we seem yeah. to have rather a lot. Uh, the grocery rebate appears to be just uh, really an extension of what was supposed to be a one-time uh, GST rebate as that was paid, for example, uh, to, to those on lower and modest incomes, uh, back in November. They're just going to do that again. That sounds what it, it basically is. The amounts of money may be slightly different, but that seems to be the same, the basic idea. I personally think it's, it's perhaps not great marketing to call it a grocery rebate because I think that makes people think that it's going to have something to do with grocery prices or something like that. And it's not going to. It's just going to be, uh, a payment from the government to those, uh, of low and modest incomes. So very similar to the dental plan. It's not necessarily for this or that or whatever. It's just a check going out the door. I think that's basically right. That uh, what we're going to see, I think the numbers they're talking about is for a single person, something of the order of $240 and for a couple, maybe uh, not quite twice that. But And then, of course, some provision for children. Uh, but it's the same kind of size of payment that was in the uh, one-time payment or pretty close to what the quarterly payment is for a lot of people on on who received that payment now. 
obviously interest rates uh, were raised to try to get us to cool off a little bit. How do you balance all this, giving out more uh, and, and still, uh, you know, being concerned about inflation and and concerned that you might trigger something else? Or is this so little it's not going to make a dent? So I think the idea is it'll make a dent, but it won't be a very big dent. And uh, the offsetting advantage, of course, is it is helping the people who are most in need. And so I personally think that's a pretty good trade-off, a pretty good place to be. But I don't think we can uh, say that any such payment uh, won't be at least a little inflationary. It's just it won't be very inflationary. It'll just put a little bit of extra inflation. I think the overall fit forces on inflation are probably going to continue to bring inflation down. Is this the way to do this, Michael, by handing out checks this way, or is there other ways to do it since it is temporary? This is the best way to do it. Uh, obviously, many have been talking about carbon tax. Uh, April 1st, uh, the sin taxes, alcohol tax was up. We were talking about that earlier. Is there other ways to do it, or is this the most efficient way? Uh, I think it's there are different ways that would accomplish similar things. The the Of course, the reason that a lot of people would like some of these other taxes to come down is that they are broadly apply to everyone. Um, and this is a very targeted measure. It only applies mm-hmm. to those at, at lowest incomes. Uh, I think that if the idea is to uh, try to preserve the overall government uh, fiscal position, in other words, not going to a position of borrowing more money than we need to, this is probably the right approach. Uh, do you think we will see any surprises tomorrow? As you mentioned, this stuff used to all be under uh, lock and key until the, the day of, uh, obviously leaking bits and pieces. That's just the order of the day. Are, are, are you expecting any surprises? Is this just going to be hold a, a sort of a hold the reins budget? I, I don't expect surprises, but of course, I guess that's the nature of surprises that it fools you. But if you look at some of the other things that have been, uh, quote, leaked, unquote, you, you get, uh, they say they're going to do something about junk fees. Uh, that is, for example, the extra payments that are people are putting when they buy concert tickets online and things like this. Well, I don't know what they can do because that's largely a provincial uh, matter. But basically, that's drawn straight from Biden's State of the Union address to the United States. It's the same kind of measure. Uh, similarly, some of the stuff they say they're going to do uh, to do with um, – uh, green tax measures or, or promotion of green industries, that that also more or less comes from uh, things that uh, came from Biden's uh, measures in, in the State of the Union address. So I don't think there's really very much of a surprise. We know the basic thrust of this government, they're going to try to do something to ease the burden on uh, those with low and modest incomes. Uh, and then they're going to have a, a broad uh green, clean technology uh, agenda, but those will probably be mostly in line with similar measures that we have seen in the United States and probably will not be that uh, um, surprising. How much of an issue will healthcare be or has that already been dealt with with the deals with the provinces? The way healthcare will come in is it'll make it a lot harder for them to to look fiscally responsible because those are are fairly big dollars. Um, And the other thing that's going to affect them is that uh, because they index measures like the old age security and the guaranteed income supplement, uh, those are going automatically up with inflation. And so for a little bit of time, the government sort of looked better on its finances because uh, the revenue had come in and some of the costs that are responsive to inflation hadn't gone up yet. But now those costs are going to start to catch up. uh, and, And that includes on the healthcare front. And that's going to make a difference uh, as we go forward in in trying to make the government look uh, fiscally responsible. We know this is a uh, minority government and uh, uh, a agreement with the NDP at this point. Are you expecting much more on uh, or details regarding dental care or pharmacare? I am not. I think that there will be mentions of those things. But in terms of uh, dollars going out the door, 
uh, probably not more than already been promised. So nothing new on or, or any agreements that perhaps we aren't aware of or things that we saw in the future, uh, for example, in their agreement with the NDP. Do you think we'll see any more giving there? Uh, I don't. Um, they will probably have at least uh, outlined this uh, with the NDP to make sure that they have the votes to pass. Um, I noticed, for example, the GST top-up, uh, they're saying that that won't go through until the whole budget goes through. And so that's kind of like uh, a bonus for, for getting it through to all the to all the members of parliament. They're going to be saying, well, at least we did this much uh, to help uh those with low incomes during inflation. What is your thoughts on the tone of the visit from U.S. President Biden uh, when they had uh, their get together last week? Uh, we're hearing a lot of North American, uh, a lot of how we have to work together, whether it's Canada, Mexico, the United States, and and bring a lot of a certain industry back or such, create jobs, what have you. Is there a different tone here? Uh, you know, where we see we're seeing a little bit more teamwork within North America. Well, I think the two the two governments are at the moment relatively ideologically compatible. But I think it's kind of interesting because I was seeing some uh, discussion that there's no U.S. commentary about the Biden visit at all. You know, basically it gets ignored in the United States. And I think we in Canada should actually see this as an advantage because when uh, Biden is speaking in the United States, he's talking a lot of America first. Right. Uh, then when it comes to Canada, he can say, well, I'm reading, you know, North America first. And, and yeah. pointing out, of course, that the Canadian-U.S. trade relationship is very large and more or less reciprocal. And there's a lot of advantages to, to keeping it that way. And so I think it's clear that uh, Mr. Biden understands this. Uh, but uh, it is somewhat of an advantage that he is able to say, oh, well, we can think North American because in a lot of those uh, areas, uh, cooperation with the United States is essential. And isn't that just realistic, Michael? Because, again, we've talked about automobiles, for example, and parts that may go across the border half a dozen times before they actually get to the consumer and such. And perhaps many Americans don't realize that. But when they say buy America, it is North American. Do you get that feeling? Absolutely. And, of course, uh, one of the things that will be in this budget will probably be uh, Canadian measures that will be trying to integrate with U.S. measures as well as possible to ensure that we get some of the advantages of the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. So, uh, you know, in general, uh, it always pays for Canada to try to figure out what the Americans are doing and play that to our best advantage. It doesn't always work, uh, but they're big, we're small, we have to try to get along. Michael Beal with us, Professor Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Statistics Canada Research Data Centre. Tomorrow is Budget Day. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good, and thanks, thanks very much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Um, is the tone changing for NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who uh, has, you know, over the last little while, I mean, certainly through post-pandemic era, has said that um, he's not necessarily happy. Well, I don't think he's even come out and said that much. He certainly has criticized, been critical of Justin Trudeau, but he, I don't think he said he's not very happy with a confidence and supply agreement that they have uh, obviously shared that keeps them, uh, in the Liberals rather, in government, and he has found that the federal government hasn't delivered and could do a better job. Is this a change of tone? Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, and with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. 
So why now? Why is he unhappy now, Daniel? Is this is his tone changing here? Well, I think there's something to do with what's coming out tomorrow, and that's the budget. So if you're any politician looking to have some buzz around yourself and your party, a budget is a good time to do that because there are going to be a lot of eyes, and everyone loves a good news story in a minority government. Will this government make it past this budget? So that being said, is there supposed to be something in the budget that either will make or break this for Jagmeet Singh? Uh, I think he's trying to position himself that way, but I think the reality is that no, uh, the NDP is in no position to go into an election anytime soon. Their fundraising numbers are quite poor. They still are managing some debt. So I think what he's doing is just kicking and screaming to get some attention before the big day. Uh, so what happens when he says a statement like this and then tomorrow there's nothing out of the ordinary? I mean, does he is he then not forced into a corner in some way? It's kind of like the boy who cried wolf a little bit. Um, I, I don't think he's going to be first into a corner. I think what he's going to do is say there are some wins here for the people I represent. So he's pushing really hard for expanding dental care uh, and changes to the GST. So if, even if they're not in there, he's going to find some small wins to say, yes, that's what the NDP did. We are delivering for Canadians. And trust me in the next election. Uh, he says he wants to be PM. Is he actively moving towards that or does he just follow the leader here? And when there's an election, he'll do his best. Uh, I think he's going to follow and be the leader here. Uh, he does want to be the prime minister. And I also want to run the Maple Leafs. Uh, I don't know who is better off. <laughs> but I think it's a tough time because I think he's starting to see that. Yes, my progressive ideas are working, but Anytime the government does something that Canadians really like, even though it was my idea, the government weirdly takes credit for it, and, and no one's listening to me. So, Daniel, are you more qualified to fix the Leafs than he is the party? Because we, we may could work something out here with you. Uh, all right, let's move uh, on. If you've ever seen me skate, I think that would be your answer right there. <laughs> hey, it's all, it's all knowledge, not the ability to play. All right, so uh, at what point does NDP leader Jugmeet Singh um, fish or cut bait? Does he say, all right, I'm going for PM, that's it? Uh, yeah, I mean, is there a right time? Like you said, they don't have a lot of money in the coffers and usually have the least of anyone. So yeah. Is there a right time to pull the plug? Uh, there probably is a right time to pull the plug, and I don't think that's right now. Like we said, their numbers aren't great uh, financially. Uh, if you look at their polling numbers, they're not doing outstanding. This seems to be the Conservatives' election uh, to do well, and it's better to have some say at the table than none at all, which would happen if the Conservatives did win. So I think we're going to see Jagmeet saying the NDP just continue to gravel a little bit. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they're going to back this government because they know this is the best it's going to get for a while. And if they think there are greener pastures, they will pull their support. But I don't think that's in the cards for the next little bit. Is this deal working in favor of the NDP? Because many of you have just said it's the government of the day that collect that, that takes credit for all this, whether it was the NDP that brought in dental, pharma, whatever. Um, is, does this, will this, do you think, in the end work in favor for them? Will all of a sudden, even if it's the opposition, people go, oh, I'm going to take this left instead of the other left? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think at the end of the day, one of the biggest issues Jake Meets say has is uh, connecting with people that don't already know him and that are not tuned into politics. Uh, when he does connect with them, he does a really good job. But broadly speaking, when you say, oh, the government introduced dental care, they're going to say, yes, that was Justin Trudeau, not Jagmeet Singh. So I think he's going to have an issue breaking through. Even with the political wins he did help get, he won't get credit for it. Uh, considering where the uh, the governing liberals are right now, should the conservatives not be doing better? Is this Pierre Polyevra's election to lose? 
Uh, we always say that about conservative leaders. They have a tendency to find new and unique ways to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. So I would say that this is his election. If you're looking at the crowds, he's pulling out to events across Canada, very similar to what Justin Trudeau was doing in 2014 and 2015. There seems to be a lot of energy, and even people who don't pay attention to politics, they're still talking about Pierre. And even my grandmother, who does not know how to use Facebook, is sharing Pierre things, and she's not traditionally involved in politics. So I think he's reaching a new demographic that is not usually engaged, but they're getting interested in what he's selling. Is this less is this going to be one of those elections where it's less about uh, the candidates and just people want change like anything but that they'll pick the best of a bad menu? Yeah, I think if we take the government for what it is and believe the NDP will support them till 2025, that's 10 years. That is a very long time for one party to be in government. And there's a lot of scandals and whatnot that kind of engage that come with it. Very similar to what we saw with Harper, we could very much see with Justin Trudeau, because I think Canadians are getting tired of it after 10 years. That's that's a long time. Daniel Perry with us, consultant Summa Strategies. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said he wants to be PM. Who doesn't? Uh, Daniel, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Same to you. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. You certainly know this story. Uh, opposition parties continue to call for a public inquiry into foreign interference amid allegations of Chinese interference, Chinese Communist Party interference in uh, the last two elections uh, and specifically uh, around a uh, uh, one MP, Han Dong, who uh, with Don Valley North, uh, that riding was has stepped away from the caucus there until uh, allegations are answered. Uh, Sam Cooper from Global uh, uh, quoting two national security sources that say he was one of the 11 who has been uh, getting support from the Chinese Communist Party. Also, very recently, uh, that uh, this MP suggested to Chinese officials that they should delay the release of the two Michaels. Well, as soon as that happened, it hit the fan uh, and, of course, the MP uh, stepped away uh, to sit as an independent. Today, it's announced that there are or there is a lawsuit pending. Haven't heard anything more on that to this point. Jeffrey Dvorkin is with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you for inviting me. Your thoughts on where this story has ended up, Jeff, and, and moving forward, your thoughts on where we are. Well, it's just beginning, as far as I can tell. Mm. I think what uh, Mr. Dong has done is very clever, and it doesn't augur well for investigative reporting in this country. This is a tactic that is used quite frequently in the United States, where a lawsuit is brought on, and in the process of discovery, um, uh, Global and uh, Mr. Cooper, the reporter, they're going to have to reveal who are these two sources that gave this information that Mr. Dong had been uh, importuned, shall we say, by by China uh, and did so in order to help the liberal gov- the liberals uh, achieve power. Um, this is going to be very interesting because um, what I've told my students is that when you become journalists and you have a big story and you promise confidentiality to one of your sources, how far would you go to protect that source? And in the United States, uh, courts have been very vigorous in saying to journalists, 
you have to reveal your sources. And if you don't, you will be held in contempt. And if you continue to refuse to release the names of your sources, you're going to go to jail. This, and, you know, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going, I'm sorry, I was just going to say that that's the change in tone here in Canada. In Ontario, we have something called a slap law, S-L-A-P-P, which stands for Strategic Legislation Against Public Participation. This is to stop uh, frivolous lawsuits from intimidating uh, the media. Uh, in this case, um, I presume that uh, Global will invoke the anti-slap legislation and say um, that the, their source is protected by law. But it depends on the, the the judge and the nature of the case. And when this case comes up before a judge for discovery, the judge most likely will say, well, I need to know who these sources were in order for this lo this lawsuit to go ahead. So that's why we're in such interesting and inf and kind of difficult and even dangerous terrain here, because it would put a uh, a, a limitation on future uh, investigative reporting. That being said, everybody wants this information. Everybody wants transparency, Jeff. Is it going to take a lawsuit to get that out as opposed to a public inquiry? Because everybody's saying, well, we can't do this because, you know, we can't do a public inquiry because we'll release sensitive information, yet we're going this route in a lawsuit that would do the same thing. Could this actually help addressing the problem by getting the facts out? In part, it probably will. You're right, Scott. The other, the other thing is that if the sources for uh, the reporter were fairly high in the government or part of the government administration that wanted, as I've seen, uh, this is completely anecdotal. I have no evidence for this, but there are rumors <laughs> about on the internet. So, um, and that is saying that there are high pe people in high places inside the government that leaked this in order to put pressure on the Trudeau government. So uh, mm. it's going to be very interesting to see how the government handles this, what kinds of pressures are exerted on global, um, and what other journalistic organizations will do and say in order to protect the right of journalists to do reporting and to protect their sources. Um, I'm guessing that this article had to jump through a series of legal hoops before it ever made it to publication. It's it, it's very difficult to get this sort of information out. Uh, that being said, has is there any reason to believe Global hasn't covered its behind here? Well, uh, I'm, Global has uh, some deep pockets when it comes to legal issues. Uh, in my time at the the CBC. When we were asked to reveal sources, our response was always, we'll see you in court. Uh, yeah. And usually that stopped it. But times have changed uh, in the intervening years, and people are much more willing to move towards the threat of litigation in order to see how far, how far people will go in order to avoid uh, admitting their responsibilities. And I, where it's just going to be a very interesting time. 
And where does this leave the government? Because um, revealing any information may, in fact, um, put them in a in a darker light. So how do they balance this by, you know, we need to get to the bottom of it. But, you know, if too much of this information gets out, whether it's through a lawsuit or a public inquiry, it, there's blowback there. Absolutely. And I think that one of the interesting uh, suggestions that I, I've seen on the Internet is that, this may have been a leak from the intelligence service in order to put pressure on the government just before uh, the visit of President Biden to Ottawa. Hmm. So, I mean, there, there's so many inter interlapping, interlacing elements in this story. Um, it's going to be uh, something that we're going to have to follow very closely to see who is responsible for these for these these leaks to global. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. As always, Jeff, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. We certainly know the story behind Roxham Road and the thousands and thousands of people that have crossed there. It, it really is turned into a cottage industry uh, for human trafficking. And with the arrival of U.S. President Joe Biden, the issue seems to be have been, uh, have been resolved. And the revised Safe Third Country Agreement is now in effect. To talk about all of this, Giddy Maman is with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluk Kingwell LLP, immigration lawyer, and with us now. Giddy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you very much for having me. We have talked about this so many times, Giddy. Can you explain to us what is different today than was it we didn't have, say, a week or two weeks ago? How is this different, this revised Safe Third Country Agreement? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a bit complicated, but uh, explain simply it's like this. We used to have people who used to go from, let's say, South America, Mexico, into the United States and make refugee claims. And uh, if, uh, you know, you, it's very difficult to make a refugee claim in the United States, the acceptance rate is very low. So a lot of people were coming to Canada to take a second kick at the can and make a claim here. So we entered into an agreement with the United States um, back in 2004, basically making refugee claimants claim where they land. So if they land in the United right. States, they cannot come to Canada. If they come to Canada, they can't go to the United States. So this agreement applied just at the ports of entry. Um, so that, that is, if you go to proper port, mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to get in. So what happened in 2017, about a week after, uh, Donald Trump's, uh, presidential term began, uh, Justin Trudeau issued a tweet saying, uh, to those fleeing persecution, terror, war, can, can, uh, Canadians will welcome you regardless yeah. of your faith. Yeah. And that tweet was heard around the world. People started coming to Canada. Uh, from the United States, and since the government took that position that we're welcoming everybody, uh, the government was would not close this hole that we had developed at Roxham Road, and people were coming across. So now, basically, the agreement, the Safe Third Country Agreement, is going to apply to the entirety of the border. So whether you're coming at a proper border, uh, proper port of entry, or if you're coming at a hole in the fence, you're going to be denied entry to Canada. If you do make it in uh, and you're not detected and you're detected within 40, 14 days, they can still remove you. If you manage to stay more than 14 days and you're not detected, then you get to make a refugee claim in Canada. So that's how it's going to work. 
So basically, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I might be oversimplifying this. Uh, the hole in the fence, you would, you would avoid this. Now with this revised, uh, uh, agreement, everybody, no matter how they come in, the first thing they have to do is go, be- go before somebody and they will decide whether they can take this avenue or that avenue. That's right. Before, if you went to Roxham Road, they would just usher you in. Now they won't do that. Now they're going to apply the Safe Third Country Agreement, which means the vast majority of people who try to make a refugee claim uh, in Canada from the U.S. are going to be denied. There are some exceptions to the rules. So, for example, if you have Canadian relatives, if you're a refugee in the United States and you have Canadian relatives, then you can come at a proper port of entry and you'll be allowed to make a refugee claim. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is going to reduce greatly the number of refugees that that reach Canada. And this really turned into a cottage industry of human trafficking at Ruxham Road. I mean, people literally showing up with cabs and bags and such. Why was Joe Biden needed to solidify this deal? What did he bring to this? Absolutely nothing. So wait a sec here, Giddy. Wait a sec, because all I heard last week is this is a massive win for Justin Trudeau and that, you know, this was all thought up of a year ago, but it's taken this long to get the ducks in a row. And I can appreciate that. But I don't understand why, like what's changed here and why the U.S. president was needed to do this. Uh, he absolutely was not needed. Canada does not need U.S. permission to close our borders. Exactly. We can do that. We can do that on our own anytime. The problem is that both Biden and Trudeau got themselves into trouble by taking a liberal approach to uh, border security. They didn't realize how many people would be rushing in. Last year alone, last year alone, the Americans allowed in 2.76 million people from the southern border. Uh, Canada last year, we took in 60,000 refugees, which we haven't done. I can't even remember a date. Ten years ago, the number was about 10,500. So they had to come up with some way to explain that they're now closing the border. And they're basically saying, well, we needed to have modifications to the safe third country agreement. The fact of the matter is when you drive down Roxham Road and you stop and you cross the ditch, it is Canada that's allowing you in. Joe Biden cannot prevent us from closing the border, and he cannot uh, prevent us from leaving our border open. And that's the truth. And, but, and he strongly suggested he wanted it closed because people were coming back down into America, not going the other way. That's a completely different dynamic. And again, yeah, yeah. Canada, the United States does not need Canada's agreement to secure their northern border. Yeah, The, the border of a country... It decides how it's going to treat its border. We did not need Joe Biden's consent to close Roxham Road. Absolutely not. Uh, so this is really a red herring because this makes it more difficult, not easier. Whereas we were saying, you know, the illusion was, well, we're going to fix this and we'll make it better for everybody. And eat. Well, no, they've just plugged the hole. Super interesting that you said that. So uh, before... Uh, about 40,000 people came into Canada this way from the United States last year, right? So now this is going to plug that hole for years to come. So what the government did was they announced that somehow we are going to take 15,000 new refugees to give you the illusion that we're being more generous. But really, those 15,000 are only going to cover 
uh, part of that 40000 that we were receiving each year from that hole in the fence. So we're not being more generous, but it's honestly what this is, this is a lot about politics. This has nothing to do with immigration policy per se. Um, this is designed to g- allow Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau get out of a very sticky situation um, that they got themselves into and saying that they couldn't do this before without disagreement, which is all nonsense. And he and the prime minister also said that he was, you know, we, the only way we're going to solve this is to scrap the third, uh, the safe third country agreement. Well, we haven't we haven't scrapped it at all. If anything, it's just been reinforced. If you scrap the refugee, the, the safe third country agreement, your refugee claims will, in my opinion, triple or quadruple what you've got now. And the reason is because the vast majority of claimants who come to Canada from the United States do not have family in Canada, right? Yeah. And now they will be able to enter, whereas before they would not have been able to enter. So who is this a win for? This is a win for Justin Trudeau and for Joe Biden, because now they have something to point at. We know that border communities were sick and tired of this. We know that the Quebec government was sick and tired of this. We know that we in Ontario even were not too appreciative of this because we had to house people. We had to, uh, you know, pay for, uh, you know, social assistance, medical care. A lot of people were not happy about this. But when you send a tweet saying, welcome to Canada, diversity is our strength, now you got to find an exit strategy. And they were both able to point to the safe third country agreement and say, well, this was our obstacle. It was not an obstacle. <laughs> this Absolutely is hilarious. This, it, 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 how is it a win if it took years to do this? I, I, I can't answer that. What I can yeah. tell you is that when you cross a ditch, now I've been there, I've spent hours there at Roxham Road, you you know, it's a CBSA officer. When you cross the ditch, you see a, CBS, a CBSA officer, and their policy, which came from Ottawa, was tell them that what they're doing is illegal. So they do. They say, you cannot cross the ditch. It's illegal to enter mm-hmm. Canada at this point of entry. And But, of course, they know to proceed. And so they cross the ditch, and the officer processes the refugee claim. That could have been stopped with a phone call from the prime minister's office to the Minister of Immigration, who would have said, that's enough, we're closing it, tell people they can't cross here, and that's the end of it. Kitty Mamam with us, senior partner, founder, Mamam Sandaluk, Kingwell M, uh, LLP, immigration lawyer on the revised safe third country agreement, which is really just enforcing it. Uh, Giddy, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Fascinating. Uh, I'm like doing 12 things at once here, and I'm watching Christy Clark, former uh, BC Premier, and talking about everybody's talking about minerals and Canada's rich in this and rich in that and whatever. And people are forgetting that just like oil in the ground, nobody wants, the environmentalists don't want any mining either. And she just said it takes about 13 years to open a mine in Canada. There are, there's so much red tape to get 
breakthrough. So everybody's talking about what we're going to need for electric vehicles that are supposed to be here, what, by the end of the week? And yet it's going to take 13 years to even, you know, I mean, they don't even have a road to the ring of fire yet. Uh, it's amazing how uh, this discussion becomes clouded. All right, let's leave that. It is 552. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, uh, the great thing about being in this show and doing what we do is you really get paid to ask people questions. And, uh, you know, we've studied this uh, safe third country agreement, and it is kind of complicated for many, many years. And we've talked about the story about the hole in the fence at Roxham Road, which is now turned into a cottage industry with over like 40,000 people a year going through the hole in the fence because the prime minister tweeted that Canada was open and you don't have to follow the regular rules. So now all of a sudden Joe Biden shows up and as we've solved and, 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 and Justin said this a couple of weeks ago, we need to scrap the safe third country agreement. Well, there's nothing has been scrapped at all. And as I talked to Giddy Mamam, a immigration lawyer, and he said it quite plainly. Nothing's been done here other than the hole in the fence has been patched, which should have been done years ago. And there's absolutely nothing that Joe Biden and he agreed on to make this happen other than they're covering the rear ends for dumb statements that they made earlier uh, and finally closing this border, which was silly to even let happen for any period of time. But the safe third country agreement has not been scrapped at all. And if anything, it's more strict. And yet everybody in the media is saying, well, this is a Huge win, huge win. Why is it a huge win? Because the prime minister finally did something. I mean, it's bizarre that somehow Joe Biden is controlling over a hole we have in our fence. The whole thing with immigration. I'll it's tell you, BS. Well, the, the thing with immigration that is so difficult, Scott, honestly, and I actually got, we're talking about immigration um, at the bottom of uh, 630 today be, with some other stuff to do with immigration in this country. Anytime you talk about it, it becomes exceedingly complicated because if you express any concerns or any thoughts about it other than everything is fine, you can be accused of, well, you're xenophobic, you're anti-immigrant. And I think most racism. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? When have we heard all of that? But here's the thing. I think most Canadians, there are some, of course, who aren't, but I think most Canadians are very much in favor of racism, uh, racism, very much in favor of immigration. Yeah, Freudian slip. Most Canadians are very much in favor of immigration. What they want with immigration is for it to be an organized and a controlled and a legal procedure where people can come and we bring in lots and lots of people. Uh, we, you know, next year it's supposed to be 500,000 people. And I think many Canadians, whether they like that number or something else, nonetheless, I think most of them say, you know what? This country has been built on people who have come here from other countries. Maybe my parents or my grandparents came. And and so I think people are very much in favor of the concept in this country, practically and theoretically. What they just want is it for for it to be done in a way that is organized and not just open lines at borders. And we want to know fair. That's another good word. Yeah. For people who have waited their turn and and we don't want people to sort of jump the queue like we're seeing down on the southern border in the States. So the problem, though, as I say, Scott, off the top is this discussion. We're going to talk about this at 630. This discussion 
so often then gets bogged down in, well, you're just against immigrants. And it's like, no, no, yeah. that's not it at all. But we, we somehow have a really hard time with some of these very big topics like immigration having gray as opposed to just black and white. I'm pro-immigration. I'm anti-immigration. There's no way to discuss and say, yes, I'm for yeah. it, but. It it just, it amazes me how this, you know, and again, it started with the prime minister tweeting, hey, we're open for business. Come through the hole in the fence. And that was a huge mistake. After, and that was you know, and, he, and he's just playing off what Donald Trump was saying in the United States. So one's just as bad as the other. They're just from either ends of the political spectrum, in my mind. But here we go. This is being sold. And he talks about scrapping the safe third country agreement. We got to get the U.S. And then they don't want to end up. There is no nothing's been done here other than the, the, the hole in the fence has been plugged. And we're saying like it's a win for for Justin Trudeau. How is it a win when a guy mm. does something that people have been after him to do for years? When Joe Biden shows up, who has absolutely no control over the hole in our fence at all. Yeah. And like, I mean, it's just a snow job. And let's go back to that. The, the, we're open for immigrants tweet. Th this is this is a perfect example of why government should not be done on social media. Yeah. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, honestly, every I, I don't mind if the government of Canada or the government of the states has a Twitter account and they put out official stuff. As far as I'm concerned, I would be not unhappy if every single leader of every single country who has a Twitter account shut it down and operated as leaders, not as social media people trying to buy votes or buy favor or buy likes. <laughs> Influencers, you're right. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Oh, if they're going to give out money for food, they maybe should give food stamps to make sure because he said they don't know, you know, they won't know where the money goes. 